We're thrilled that Graham Usher is with us. Uh, I've known Graham for a long time, and Graham was recently um, rector of Hexham Abbey in uh, Northumberland, the Diocese of Newcastle, and of course a perfect place, a perfect landscape in which to steep oneself in the kind of theology um, that Graham talks about so beautifully uh, in his book, Places of Enchantment, Meeting God in Landscapes. And the, um, it's not just because Graham was uh, rector of Hexham that he's able to write so uh, from such experience and so eloquently. He also has various other strings uh, to his bow, including the fact that he was a national trustee of the Scouse Association, uh, and one thinks of them camping in many an enchanted landscape. Um, but more recently, he worked to protect forest and woodlands as one of the Secretary of State's nominees on the Northumberland National Park Authority. So it's only fitting that he's written this wonderful book about the ways we can know God and experience the divine in nature. And in fact, uh, Graham may talk more about this, but in some liturgical contexts, the season that we're currently in is set aside as a season in which to reflect on God as creator. Uh, so these next four Sundays, which lead up to the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi on the 4th of October, are an ideal time to be considering uh, the theology uh, of Graham's book. So, Graham, we're thrilled that you're here, and Graham's going to talk for about uh, 30, 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have a, a, a discussion. So, do please think about things you'd like to ask or observations you'd like to make uh, at the end of Graham's talk. Let's give a warm welcome to Graham Usher. Thank you, uh, Canon Michael, and uh, thank you for your welcome. It's a huge privilege uh, to be invited to speak at this uh, forum, particularly when I look at the uh, lineup you have and the intergalactic superstars that uh, you managed to attract here. Uh, it was also good to uh, worship with you upstairs. True, true sense of the world church. To my right was a lady from uh, Nigeria to Behind me, two people from uh, the American Episcopal Church. In front of me, some people from Spain. And to the left of me, two gentlemen who didn't have a clue what was going on, but uh, <laughs> were caught up in, in the worship that we offered. Words from William Wordsworth, written in 1798 in his poem, Tintern Abbey. And I felt a presence that disturbs me with joy. The joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime, of something far more deeply infused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean, and the living air, and the blue sky, and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Can I take you to a few different places where a presence has disturbed me? First to Chesil Beach in Dorset, a shoreline of pebbles, 
and sitting there with the sea ebbing and flowing, but with a bit of a bite to it, not something really gentle, but coming up and down on that pebbled shoreline, the stones rattling and shaking as the sea breathes in and breathes out. And you sense that your own breathing links with the movement of the sea. And you look into the distance through beyond what is beyond what you can see. And you feel present within the rhythm of creation. Well, can I take you to the other end of the country? And after a long day's climbing, you reach the summit of Ben Hope in Sutherland. And far, far below you, from the top of that Munro, you look down and see the loch shimmering like mirrors far below as a road winds its way up the glen, past the ancient stone broch, home to an earlier settled people. And in the distance, you can glimpse the sea off the northern coast of Scotland, and around you, mountains rise up within the landscape. Cleebrek and Arkel and Foynavon. And birds, perhaps eagles, circle below you, rising on the thermals and descending over the precipice of cliffs. And somehow you think that you're on top of the world, and if only you could stretch out your arms, you too could glide a thousand miles, which in my case would be something of a miracle, defying all that Newton taught us. And let me take you to a pine forest in Northumberland, and you're sitting on a tuft of thick, soft grass, your back resting on the gnarled, thick bark of a Scots pine tree, and you look up into the canopy as the sun shines through. And because of the pollen dust in the air, the sun is refracted into layers that enables you to glimpse something wonderful. The smell of the pine, the warmth of the sun reaching you, and even seeing the odd wood ant climbing up onto your trousers means you feel you have a new aliveness to the presence of the beauty of God. Of course, in our Anglican tradition, so much of this is caught up in the words of the Benedicite. Oh, let the earth bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, you mountains and hills. Bless the Lord, all that grows in the ground. Sing his praise and exalt him forever. Bless the Lord, all you springs. Bless the Lord, you seas and rivers. Bless the Lord, you whales and all that swim in the sea. Sing his praise and exalt him forever. Bless the Lord, all the birds of the air. Bless the Lord, you beasts and cattle. Bless the Lord, all people on earth. Sing his praise and exalt him forever. St. Paul wrote to the Romans, ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that he has made. And so in writing Places of Enchantment, I wanted to explore how we encounter God in creation, to ask deep questions about whether it was a facade of beauty 
that caught the imagination, or whether there might just be times when we might imagine and feel the very presence of God, even encounter him in landscapes. Now, you see, we've brought landscape into our churches, drawn it into the iconography of our buildings, those green men spewing their hedgerow meals from the bosses high above our medieval churches, or the pillars and vaulted ceilings that carried tracery of foliage up them. Or look at our medieval cathedrals with their great pillars rising up into vaulting. And you suddenly realize that the architects of that day were drawing inspiration from sacred groves. They were bringing the sacred into divine architecture. And of course, we also sing sing hymns that that speak of awesome wonder evoked when through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Yet I hear people say to me so often, Ah, Graham, I don't go to church. Why? Because I don't particularly feel close to God there. I feel closer to God if I go for a walk in the woods, or I feel closer to God in my garden, or I feel closer to God when I look into the night sky and cannot count all the stars above my head. And I'm really interested in why that might be. Have we become so institutionalised, so closed in, seeing prayer as only being valid within the building of a church? And yet that's not what we encounter as we turn the pages of Scripture. For as you turn the pages of Scripture, you find that the divine drama is played out in the beauty of a garden, between the rocky pinnacles of a mountain by the coolness of a riverside, in the harsh, parched wilderness of the desert, and among the turmoil and busyness of a crowded city. And down through the centuries, hosts of seekers and sojourners, poets and pilgrims, have sought out these places, often finding God's presence in unexpected ways, Painters have tried to capture on canvas something of the numinous that they encounter in front of them. Chroniclers have etched the way that the aesthetic has changed them. And writers have tried to describe the power that these places play on the imagination. Each has embraced something of what St. Thomas Aquinas reminded us of, that God is revealed both in the book of nature and in the scriptures. And the fact that I come across people all too frequently who say that they can't find God in church 
but do so in a landscape is both sad and exciting. Sad because our liturgy, prayers and music, the very aesthetics of our worship, often do not connect with people. And yet exciting because it allows us to ask questions, to explore new avenues, to ask how can some of the challenge, the continuity and the community that we find within the church family be taken out into landscapes and in our encounter and worship of God? How can the natural world be drawn into our liturgy more? How can landscapes be a place that resource the faithful who are often overburdened by church life, of organising things, running things, and fitting to a rotor? How can they be re-energised within their life and journey with the Lord? And how can landscapes be a doorway that encourage people into a relationship? How can they be missional, in other words, to enable people to respond to God's gracious invitation to be a disciple? You see, too much institutional religion can seriously damage your health. So, in this talk, I want to just make a few preliminary comments about landscape and how we view it, and then to look in a bit more detail about mountains, about as far different as you can get from where we're sitting uh, right now. So the first question really is, what is a landscape? Now it's something that's physical, can be touched, moved around in, observed and explored, but there are a number of tensions when we think about what a landscape is. Tensions between whether you're looking at it from a distance, or you're zooming in close and are moving around within it. In a sense, the difference between looking at a painting in an art gallery as an observer and kind of walking into the real life landscape of that painting and moving around within it. Are we detached and observing? Or are we, in a sense, a participant, living and moving within it? And another tension, as we think about landscape, lies between how we've been conditioned to view that landscape from perhaps a particular perspective. Art plays a major part in how we view a landscape, what we see as being sublime or of interest, what we see as being of ugliness. And landscape is much influenced by the story of our culture, not just the work of nature. There are very few landscapes left in Britain that have escaped cultural changes that can be described as being natural. Some of the best heather moorland, which lots of people think is a natural environment, is only there because it is managed as such through the burning of the heather. Climatic changes, atmospheric pollution, all have their impact on landscape. And Christians have had a great fear 
of how we engage with landscapes, with nature, because the greatest dread is of pantheism, the sense of beginning to worship that which is before us. And a certain move away from that into a move of what we could call panentheism, of seeing God within all that is around us, has been particularly revived through the Celtic tradition, with an understanding of certain landscapes being thin places, where that wondrous power of the divine is seen breaking through into the life of the world. And I would suggest as we encounter God in landscape, we do, through, do so through having an attentiveness to God and also a sense of anchorage in our history. One day the poet R.S. Thomas, who lived for much of the 20th century, a rather irascible priest character who lived in Wales, ignored a moment when the sun was glimmering on a field that he was walking by. And he sat down later and reflected on that fleeting moment as the sun shone on a field. And he wrote these words, I have seen the sun break through to illuminate a small field for a while and gone my way and forgotten it. But that was the pearl of great price, the one field that had treasure in it. I realize now that I must give all I have to possess it. Life is not hurrying on to a receding future, not hankering after an imagined past. It is the turning aside like Moses to the burning of the lit bush, to a brightness that seems as transitory as your youth but is the eternity that awaits you. He realized that in his lack of attentiveness at that moment, he had missed out on God breaking through. By stilling ourselves, time which seems to slip away, begins to have a different quality. What do we hear, taste, touch, smell and see when we're in a landscape? How can we use our senses to be present in the sacrament of the present moment? And as Henry Theroux wrote, how can we live deep, sucking out the very marrow of life? So the crashing waves along a coastal footpath might connect us with a sense of the power of God. Or standing on a mountaintop might give us a sense of the creativity of God that stretches out in front of us. Or sitting watching the colours of a sunset might elicit the response, isn't this peaceful? And a sense of feeling at one with creation. So being attuned to the very place where we are, enables this attentiveness within our own looking. My second point is that landscapes 
anchor us in our history. They provide these places of anchorage within a changing world, perhaps even drawing us back to earlier experiences within them. Her landscapes also resonate with stories. They're steeped in our cultural and national consciousness and identity. Take, for example, the landscape of the Scottish Highlands, which we can read in numerous different ways. We can see them with their grandeur and wonder of the Creator God or as a resource given to us by God to harvest, mine and use for our own benefit, or as a place to protect biodiversity as God's good stewards, or as an area that speaks of injustice following the Highland Clearances in the 18th and 19th centuries, where many thousands of Highlanders were turfed off their land and sent to the lowlands or abroad or a place of human enjoyment and delight, of recreation for walkers and skiers and mountain bikers, or an area ripe for human flourishing through economic development and renewal. There's lots of different contested views. And it's interesting how both the Yes campaign and the Better Together campaign at the moment are using different aspects of this to promote a sense of Scottish identity. Landscapes go deep within our cultural understanding of who and what we are. And through this attentiveness and anchorage, I believe that we can be open to a personal connection with God, that we can receive God's gift of grace the active work of God drawing us out to the people that we truly are in him. Thus, landscapes have the capacity to reveal a world and self beyond our knowing. They can be, in other words, sacramental. For they provide this in-breaking theatre towards God's presence as God makes God's self known through the whole of created order. And this is not of our beckoning, but is God's free gift to each of us. God chooses to God reveal God's self in the places that we are, blessing everything that he creates. But neither is it a fact of kind of God turning up on demand the encounter can't be forced because the initiative always lies with God and God shows himself in often the most unexpected of ways. And neither is this moment of God's revelation, this theophany, some special private moment, though it may only be experienced by an individual alone. But it's part of that Love which continually pours forth from God, drawing the whole creation into a unity of renewal and its ultimate fulfillment in God's true self. So let's have a look at mountains. And mountains I just adore. I love nothing better than being in a mountain landscape. 
which is quite unusual. For up to 200 or so years ago, there was a great fear of being around mountains. And still some people I come across carry that fear to this day. The young wealthy aristocrats on their great tour of Europe would pull down the carriage windows when it got a bit too rocky or precipitous. They were scared witless and talked of mountains of being warts, pimples and blisters on the face of the earth. And they chose not to look at the mountain landscape directly, but to look at it behind their back with, through the, the lens of a clawed mirror. This handheld device that kind of darkened the landscape. It reduced its colour, simplified its tonal range and made it all much more palatable. And yet mountains also carry a sense of being sacred places in many different world religions and cultures. Followers of St Francis of Assisi established Mount Laverna in central Italy as a sacred mountain, as somewhere to journey with Francis as you climbed to the summit of it. And if you go to the mountains above Ephesus, you can visit the supposed last home of the Virgin Mary, having gone to Ephesus with John the Apostle. Up there, high, high above Ephesus, was her home. It was a long schlep with the shopping. But both of these places, these living sacred mountains, act as an axis mundi, a place where earth and heaven meet, where humans and God can meet. And we see in many cultures how mountains provide blessings of water and life and healing of well-being. And they're places where the mist swirls around giving a mystical aura, or where in storms there are flashes of lightning and crashes of thunder and mountains take on an extra dimension as supernatural places. And they're there continuously as you turn the pages of your Bible. It was on Mount Sinai, or Horeb as it's also known, that Moses was to encounter God within the burning bush, having tended the flock of his father Jethro, having fled Egypt. And apparently if you go to St. Catherine's Monastery today, you can still see that bush, and just beside it, just in case is a fire extinguisher. <laughs> Sinai is a harsh environment, a fearsome place, untamed and desolate, a place on the edge where life is frugal and death is never far away. And through Exodus we encounter how Moses goes up and down that wretched mountain trying to gain a sense of greater understanding of God. He glimpses only the shadow of God's grandeur from a hiding place in the cleft of the rock. And as we will see elsewhere, God is met in emptiness 
avoids all efforts to prepackage and gift wrap him. For Sinai's impulse is to empty us of inadequate things, to destroy our idolatries, to cut through all those false conceptions of the holy. And through cloud and smoke and fire, the sound of trumpet and of thunder, Moses becomes the mediator between God and his people, entering the cloud for 40 days and 40 nights, the swirling mist surrounding him as he listens to God. Years after Moses, the great prophet Elijah won his contest with the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel. And after a tortuous story of massacre and revenge, Elijah runs for his life, leaving the city and heading for the desert, ready to die. But as the passage progresses, we find that Elijah, like Moses, experiences the presence of God on the very same mountain. He shelters as a fugitive in a cave. Perhaps, as some commentators suggest, the cleft of the same part of the mountain where Moses had saw God's glory pass by. And Elijah, confused and unsure of his future, asks out that searching question, what are you doing here? He's still smarting after everything that has happened to him. And it's at that moment that he's told to come out of the cave, for the Lord will pass by. Now for Elijah, his whole cultural understanding of how he would encounter God, his whole religious and cultural understanding, was that he would encounter God through the forces of nature. And so outside the cave, the rocks begin to shatter in the wind, and you can imagine them dangerously cascading down the mountain, bits of the stone flying into the mouth of the cave like grenades. But God is not encountered there. And an earthquake shakes Elijah's feet and leaves him dizzy and disorientated. But God is not encountered there. Nor in the fire that sweeps down the mountain hot, crackling and licking at the rock face. Every single classic religious imagery does not encounter the one true living God. And then comes a faint whisper, a still small voice. And Elijah can only respond by covering his face with his mantle. He encounters God in a way that is beyond his understanding and his language. The faint whisper has also been translated as crushing silence. And it seems to me that that conveys something of the deep silences that can be encountered 
in mountains. And in the Gospels, we find another mountain where God is encountered anew. On the Mount of Transfiguration, as Jesus goes up that mountain, so he goes as the new Moses and as the new Elijah. Having preached his sermon on the Mount, having been carried in his womb, in Mary's womb, to visit Elizabeth in the uplands of the Judean wilderness. So now, with a few close disciples, Jesus is transfigured before them. And what does Peter want to do? But Peter wants to capture the moment, to hold it, to box it, to pre-package it for further use. The disciples experience something quite extraordinary and incredible up that mountain. And when we encounter God in the mountains, when that veil into the unknown lifts for a fleeting moment, we too can have a tendency of wanting to capture that experience, to somehow bottle it up, to keep it forever, to store it as a resource, to draw on again later. We're caught between experiencing silent awe and wishing to give that moment expression, between simply being present in the embrace of the moment and wanting to make a creative response. And can I just talk of one more mountain that we encounter amongst many in the Bible? Well, Golgotha is not referred to in Scripture as being on a hill. It has assumed that reputation. It is, of course, placed geographically just outside the city walls of Jerusalem, itself built on Mount Zion, and by tradition the temple was built on Mount Moriah, the place of Abraham's planned sacrifice of Isaac. And in Christian iconography, the cross is frequently painted with the skull of Adam at its base, which stems from the medieval period of the place of the skull being also the mountain at the earth's centre. And immediately Golgotha leads us to a quandary, even a problem. Often we're drawn to landscapes because of their beauty. But the cross, with all its horror, injustice and death, stands countercultural to what we perceive as a beautiful landscape. If we believe that in Jesus Christ we encounter God's freely uttered self-revelation, then the way of Christ in all its ways is something of divine beauty, including even the passion. And the landscape of the cross makes us look again at places we first define 
as ugly, so as to see God already there, delighting in that which we do not see and willing the locality's transformation. For just as the beauty of the cross can only be seen through the transforming prism of the resurrection, so we can begin to see God's given potential in the ugly, broken, and despised places of God's world. While we might have the natural temptation to always want to flee such places, they may have much to reveal to us if only we dare stay a little while. And I make that point because it's so easy, and especially in a book like this, to cover those scenic, beautiful landscapes as if they have a monopoly on theophany. What unites the mountains of Moriah, Sinai, Tabor and Golgotha is that they're all places of prayer, of revelation and of transformation. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the risen Jesus directs his disciples to meet him on another mountain in Galilee. And on that mountain, we see these themes coming together. There is prayer as they worshipped him. There is revelation as Jesus came promising to be present with them until the end of time. And there is transformation as they are sent out, commissioned to make disciples of all nations. So going up the mountain, literally and metaphorically, means leaving something of the world behind, being open to the invitation of the living God. No wonder the psalmist sang out, I lift up my eyes to the hills. The English poet and priest Thomas Traherne toyed with this whole idea of encountering God in the created world. And amongst some of the most beautiful poetry and language that's been ever written in English, in my opinion, are these words. You never enjoy the world aright, till the sea itself floweth in your veins, till you are clothed with the heavens and crowned with the stars, and perceive yourself to be the sole heir of the whole world, and more than so, because men are in it who are every one sole heirs as well as you. Till you can sing and rejoice and delight in God, as misers do in God and kings in gold and kings in scepters, you never enjoy the world, till your spirit filleth the whole world, and the stars are your jewels, till you are as familiar with the ways of God in all ages as with your walk and table. And for this to begin, for it to begin to happen, we need to imagine God as both almighty, ruling over everything, and at the same time infusing, sustaining, and renewing his creation. This transcendent God who is always willing to be imminently known. 
reminding us that we're all part of a huge web of interconnections in an enchanted world. The problem is that as soon as you've experienced God in a landscape, it can be as if God hides God's self, like walking towards a mirage. Any attempt to capture the moment runs through your fingers. R.S. Thomas, in his poem, Pilgrimages, has an amazing line about this. Such a fast God, always before us and leaving as we arrive. Our attentiveness in the present becomes an anchorage for the future. And it's in our journey, our journey that takes us through the cross and the resurrection, that like Peter travelled as well, enables us to begin to wonder at God's enchanted world. To realise that that walk takes us from that landscape ultimately into the outstretched arms of Christ, drawing us together with the whole created order into Christ's loving embrace and forming us as a new community. And that community, with all its many, many faults and many, many failures, is the church. For I believe it's in that midst of a group of fellow seekers, faithfully trying to follow the Lord, that our experiences of God in landscape find their truest expression and their depth through the challenge, continuity, connection and community that ultimately the church beautifully gives us. For it's in that community of the church that we find a way home, ultimately to death and resurrection life, in the company of others, knowing that we too are a bag of chemical elements, of carbon and plenty of H2O. And as Henry Van Dyke, who I'm going to finish with now, a 19th century American poet and priest, recalled something of the wonder of creation as being the route to find our way back home to the God who loves us, creates us, and recreates us in his image. These are the things I prize and hold of dearest worth, light of the sapphire skies, peace of the silent hills, shelter of forests, comfort of the grass, music of birds, murmur of little rills, shadow of clouds that swiftly passed, and after showers, the smell of flowers and of the good brown earth, and best of all along the way, friendship and mirth. Let me not creep into some darkened room and hide 
from all that makes the world so bright and dear. But throw the windows wide to welcome in the light. And while I clasp a well-beloved hand, let me once more have sight of the deep sky and the far smiling land. Then gently fall on sleep and breathe my body back to nature's care. My spirit out to thee, God of the open air. Graham, thank you so much. You brilliantly evoked enchanted landscapes for us uh, here in the uh, concrete jungle of the square mile of the city. And that's no mean achievement, but you did it beautifully and eloquently. So thank you so much. I was so busy telling you that um, Graham used to be uh, in charge of Hexham Abbey in Northumberland that I completely forgot to tell you that he's currently Bishop of Dudley uh, and was consecrated here at St Paul's in, in March on Lady Day, which was a wonderful uh, occasion. Um, and quite a contrast between um, Hexham and Dudley near Wolverhampton, but you're not too far from the Malvern Hills in that beautiful Diocese of Worcester. But it does make me think about... Um, a contrast which you alluded to uh, when you were talking about uh, Golgotha and the cross. Um, and it, one of the things that I'm very interested in is the uh, concept in Celtic spirituality about the thin place um, where you encounter God all the more readily. And of course, for the Celts, that very much was forest glades and hillsides and mountain tops. Um, but presumably, the, the Celtic thin places must exist also in the industrialised city and uh, otherwise people are denied that theophany and you said how beautiful landscapes can't have a monopoly on theophany. Uh, so are there Celtic thin places in the industrialised city and or should we be making sure that people leave the city regularly to experience the theophany of beautiful landscapes? Well I think it was uh, George MacLeod who coined that phrase, thin places. Uh, George MacLeod, who uh, refounded um, the Abbey on Iona. But what is um, often misunderstood about George MacLeod is that not only uh, did he do incredible work in bringing men from, from Glasgow to rebuild by hand that incredible Abbey and to found a community to live and pray there, but at the same, and by the way, it was f funded by, uh, by uh, munitions uh, factories, largely. Um, he, he was very good at getting money out of people so that they may well uh, end up in heaven. Um, uh, but uh, equally, at the same time, he uh, worked very, very closely with people in the toughest of parts of Glasgow. And the Iona community to this day has its base in Govan. And, 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 and a lot of its work and theology is, is doing exactly that, reflecting um, this, the sense of how can the spirit of Jesus dance with joy and delight in uh, an area of huge unemployment and poverty and, and urban difficulty. And it's not just you know, going and, and you know, uh, counting pebbles on Iona that uh, leads to an encounter with God, but God is there in, in the midst of the city and 
And, and one of the wonderful things about places like this is that here in, in this world capital, you provide sanctuary, space, uh, peace, rest um, for people going about their daily lives here. And, and I think it's, there's a, it's a both and people going and, and finding places where they can have um, their soul restored uh, from the busyness of, of life in an urban environment, but also finding those places of encounter um, in the midst of, of busy world cities and, and other urban areas. Thank you very much. Yes. I'd like to pick up on the point about urban landscape, really, because I often find myself excited by a beautiful old town or certain group of buildings or something, as I would with a landscape out in nature. And I do remember the first time, though, that I um, penetrated the, the new Docklands area and I got off the train at Canary Wharf and walked out. I felt absolutely awful, like the whole place didn't have any spirit, it seemed like artificial, like almost like a science fiction place, it had very, you know, trees were in pots and, you know, it seemed to completely lack that natural touch with you know, all these glass and concrete buildings. And I, you know, it really had a sort of spiritual impact in the sense of feeling the emptiness of spirit in a place like that. Mm. Now, it might be nowadays because more people are there and it's kind of bedded down a bit, perhaps there is some spirit, but it made me think that perhaps human beings have to add their spirit to a landscape to actually make a landscape spiritual. I don't know if that's a sensible idea or not, but you know, it's something that's created between us and the landscape. It's not just there in the landscape. We have to attune to it and anyway, that's my thought. Okay. I, I, think, I think you raised a very important question there and what I'd want to say is that God is, is everywhere and that God is there before we are. And if we believe that, then, then no place is God forsaken. So God is everywhere, but there's a sense that some of the new towns and new places where people feel that sense of emptiness is partly because of that attentiveness hasn't yet really happened uh, with the people who are living there. It hasn't got a, a new sense of the history of place. And, and, and those are the kind of ingredients that I think enable that, that, that sense of place to become stronger. Yes. Thank you very much for your talk, and I, I was reflecting about some of the mountains that you described. From my own attempt to get to the top of Mount Sinai and the great struggle of getting on the camel and all the rest of it. What, what I was thinking about, the two things I want to comment on. One was that one is very seldom alone. The tourism culture has now taken over so much. And the other problem is, we're so desperate to record everything. So I get my wife to take the photos, but I've also got the little camera on my BlackBerry. I can take a picture any time. If, if Peter was, Transfiguration was happening now, what would Peter do? <laughs> he whip it out. You know, <laughs> or you, you, you have the ice bucket challenge. Really. <laughs> but my, my, my real question to you, and my real challenge, is actually about going back to the liturgy. Speaking as a church musician, how often in our worship, do we actually give any hint of the grandeur of God? How often do we actually lower it all down to a very low level? Because we think that's what people actually want. How are we going to get people to come off the golf course to come to church, is my question. 
I'm very interested as people. I'm most interested as people who come and stand in the porch. I don't actually get in to the church. They're sort of there, but um, you know, on the brink. And, and I, I obviously have to attend one heck of a lot of worship, uh, particularly in my new role. And, um, you know, sometimes I think, gosh, if only we could just shut up and listen a bit more. Uh, and what might that do to shape us as the people of God if, if we actually had a lot more silence built into our worship? Um, and I'm a great fan of the English choral tradition, so it was a joy this morning, you know, in the, uh, both the, uh, the Sanctus and the Agnus, um, to kind of lose myself in that music and that moment. And that, that's, a great, that's a great gift that, um, that the Anglican Church gives to the world, I think. Any other questions? Yes, just there. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's a good point, yes. Yes. Yes, lighting is a great sort of creator of theophanic moments, isn't it? Mm, very good point. Yes, just behind there. I attend a little uh, Anglican church in Australia in a little village in a very, there's a range of things that have been tried. Um, these places are brilliant. Um, uh, our cathedrals are fantastic places for drawing in seekers and those who want to put their toe in, in the water because they so often allow you just to come and to pray and to be present before the Lord without being pounced upon um, by the end of the service being on six rotors. So there is a great gift that cathedrals and greater churches have in, in that kind of role. And I, I don't think we should underestimate that. There are, there are also some fresh expressions of, of worship that are happening at the moment, which I think are really interesting. So in a number of places, there's something called Forest Church, where uh, groups of people are meeting um, as church in a forest environment. Now, I think it's a bit mixed. Some of what I've come across is pretty new agey, really. Um, and it's almost as if uh, Jesus gets tagged on at the end of some all sorts of odd things. Uh, but others, it's really very authentic with some fascinating um, liturgy that's being produced and a sense of, of trying to explore um, how we worship within a, 
in the wider natural world. So I think there's a number of things that are, are going on. Um, and I, I would, you know, and I suppose I argue in this book that um, just having nice experiences of God in nature actually is kind of a bit empty ultimately because that continuity and challenge uh, that we find in, in, within the life of the church is somehow absent um, as indeed a real sense of, of delving into the scriptures and, and being challenged by the scriptures. The scriptures continually challenge us and, and the gospel of Christ is, is the deepest challenge in our lives. And, and so often it can be, we can be left, I think, with a, a nice feeling of God. And actually, to be a pilgrim, to be a disciple, is not about having nice feelings. It's about something that goes much deeper than that. And I think another point that follows on from that is that we don't just go to church to encounter God. We go to church to give thanks to the God whom we've encountered somewhere else, which may be uh, in some beautiful landscape or in some extraordinary uh, situation in our lives. So that sense of saying to people, well, you may have encountered God on the beach, but come to church to give thanks to that same God and then go back to the beach is, is one way. There's lovely stuff in common worship, our, our new liturgy about the agricultural year as well. Big efforts being made to rediscover the liturgy of the agricultural year which I think is particularly important for people in the city to be able to remember that when you buy your loaf of bread in Marks and Spencer, there's a very big landscape, divine story that's led up to the making of that loaf of bread. Now, we're out of time, sadly, because I think we could have carried on talking for a long time. It's wonderfully a theological romance about this subject. So let's thank Graham hugely for sharing his thoughts with us uh, and his book and his time and trouble for being here. <laughs>